This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Brian Stoffer about his new book, Victory on Earth or in Heaven. So, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, in, I'm really excited to be a part of it. Um, I was wondering if you could help us start this interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, my background, of course, is in Mexican history. Um, I did uh, an MA at the University of uh, New Mexico in Albuquerque and a PhD at the University of Texas uh, at Austin, um, studying under uh, Matthew Butler, who's a historian of 20th century church-state conflict in Mexico. Um, And so I did my um, dissertation on uh, the so-called Religionero Rebellion in Mexico, uh, took place during the uh, presidency of Sebastián Lerdo de Tejada uh, in the 1870s, uh, and really trying to figure out, um, uh, not only tell the sort of complete story of this revolt, but also uh, try to find out what kind of motivated it, uh, what was going on behind the scenes, etc. cetera. Um, I'm now actually, uh, I've sort of left academia, or at least I'm sort of in the alt-ac world. Uh, I work as the translator and curator of the Spanish collection at the Texas General Land Office, uh, the land office in Texas has um, a cache of records from the time when Mex- when Texas was part of uh, New Spain and then part of Mexico, uh, and those records form what we call the Spanish collection. And so I'm sort of in charge of that collection, uh, do a lot of translation work, but also um, some sort of academic work as well. Work working on some book projects and things like that. Um, so that's what I've that's sort of my background and what I've been up to. So if I can ask, how did you land on this topic or this sort of lesser known rebellion in particular? Sure. Yeah. So it was, I think like a lot of um, historical uh, research, it was sort of a happy accident. Um, I was uh, an MA student at the University of New Mexico. Uh, I was in Michoacan, in Morelia, Michoacan. Uh, I had gone there um, looking for evidence of of especially indigenous, but sort of popular engagement with um, liberalism. That was kind of the big topic at the time. Florencia Mallon's book had come out, and I was very, very enthusiastic about that book. Um, and so I was sort of interested in finding out. I, also, I had also read this book by Eduardo Ruiz, this 19th century Michoacano, who had written a book about the intervention, the, the French intervention in Michoacan. And he'd mentioned um, the participation of, of some indigenous people in the town of Sitacuaro, um, and, and tried to sort of figure out why they had gotten involved uh, in the liberal cause against Maximilian. And so I, was, I had gone to Michoacan to try to find evidence about that story, about to try to flesh that out uh, about indigenous involvement in the intervention. Um, and I really didn't find much when I got there. Um, and instead, I happened upon these books at the State Archive of, of Michoacan, um, known as the Ijuelas books, which are uh, collections of uh, correspondence mostly um, having to do with the subdivision of indigenous communal lands uh, in Michoacan, 
um, in the 19th century, all of it's stemming from the, uh, the, the 1856 Lay Lerdo, right, that mandated the, the, the subdivision of indigenous communal lands. Um, so it's an it's a absolutely fantastic collection. And by the way, it's being digitized completely right now um, under a grant that I was uh, involved with. Um, so those will be available for the whole world to see one day. But anyway, I was, I was there, I'd, I'd stumbled upon these books and I thought, well, this is a really fascinating, um, different avenue I can take. Uh, and I chose a community and almost at random, not totally at random, but I, I chose a community that I thought, um, I could tackle in an MA thesis. So I chose the community of Qualcomán. Um, the Ijuelas books are organized by district. Um, and so I chose the district of Qualcomán, which has several different indigenous communities in it. And I started following the story of how the uh, communal lands were broken up. Um, and what I found very quickly was that in Qualcomán, uh, I'd happened upon one of the more conflictive uh, cases of land division uh, in which indigenous comuneros, or at least a faction of them, actually went into active revolt. Um, over this issue of uh, the subdivision of communal lands, the way it was done was was quite um, was frankly fraudulent in some in some aspects. Um, and what I found was that these indigenous comuneros, the ones who had revolted against the local government, actually made common cause with another set of rebels who were operating in the area, rebels under the the leadership of this guy Bonifacio Vaca. Um, and when I started digging around a little more, I found out that this was a religionero chief, um, and I had never heard of this revolt before. Uh, so I was just sort of really interested, uh, got really interested then in, in trying to figure out, flesh out this story, figure out who the religioneros were, uh, why they, they revolted against the government, etc. And, and I found almost no help in the historiography. Um, there's, there's really very little written about them. Um, and, the, and what has been written about them is fairly dismissive um, most of the time. And so I, I didn't end up um, pursuing that for the MA. I actually did go on to write a, a, an MA about communal land disentailment in, in Qualcomán. Uh, but I knew that that's, it's something I wanted to revisit at the doctoral level. And so, in fact, at that during that trip to Morelia, I actually contacted Matthew Butler at UT Austin and said, hey, have you heard of these religioneros? And uh, he said, I've, I've run across that stuff, too, and I've always been interested. This would be a great you know, PhD topic. Uh, and that's, that's sort of how the whole thing got started. So surprises in the archive are always very fun. Um, that, and, and I think the best projects come out of that. Uh, your, your book picks this up, and the first line of the introduction is when I was hooked, um, because it tells us that this book is a story of ordinary Catholic men and women who were simultaneously challenging secular radicalization and Catholic modernization. How can there be a Catholic rebellion against Catholicism? <laughs> That's a great question. And I think it, 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 it's hard for us to wrap our heads around because we're so used to thinking in terms, in these sort of monolithic terms about church and state, especially in Latin America, especially in Mexico, which has probably the most conflictual church-state history in all of Latin America. Um, so, so we kind of default to this idea about, um, well, there's this epic battle between church and state in, in Mexico in the 19th century. And on one side, we have Juarez and we have his, his liberals. Um, and on the other side, we have these kind of, of these sort of arch reactionary Catholics um, aligned with the papacy, maybe. Um, and what I began to found, find when I started digging into this a bit more was it's much more complicated than that. Um, I had known that the, the Mexican literature on the church has, has gotten very, very good, um, it has, has developed uh, a lot over the last couple of decades. Um, so there's a lot of scholars, particularly in Mexico, who are doing a lot of sort of disaggregating of the church as a, as a institution or as a category, finding all these different layers. 
Um, so that was one avenue to pursue. But once once I started actually researching at the local level, or especially at the diocesan level, so in the archive of the Diocese of Zamora uh, and in the um, archive at, the, at what's called the Casa Morelos, which is where the Archdiocese of Michoacan's archive is located, it was actually appropriated by the state during the revolution. What I found when I started looking at the parish level was well, that there were all kinds of conflicts going on within parishes between Catholics. Um, and that shouldn't shouldn't surprise us again if we if we understand Catholicism as this very broad umbrella and that there are many, many different um, tendencies or kinds of Catholicism within it. Uh, but what really struck me was the level of, of conflict, particularly at this time, uh, between these different factions uh, uh, within Catholicism at the local level. And these factions I designated, well, on the one hand, the Ultramontanes, um, who are aligned with this more modernizing uh, reformist uh, restorationist project um, that's being really diffused into Michoacan by a couple of key players, including uh, relatives of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Archbishop of Mexico. Um, and then on the other side, what I call the Baroque Catholics, uh, and these are, they tend to be more popular, they tend to be more uh, indigenous and Afro-Mestizo, and they are, uh, they are partisans of a more um, collective and a more exuberant and, and a more uh, uh, externally oriented kind of religion. Um, and so you see that this, this, this conflict um, really does have a lot to do with the ways that different people in different communities responded to the challenge of the Lerdista uh, anti-clericalism. Um, and so I, I felt it important to try to, um, to, to get beyond this sort of church state uh, narrative and try to dig a little bit more into what was happening within the church itself and within Catholicism. Um, I, which is a very provocative um, task at hand to talk about not only the nuances within the Catholic community, but also but also the conflicts between them. And then also, as you point out, of course, almost all of the radical secularizers are Catholic themselves, um, which, which often gets left out of the story. So you, you pick up the, sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say that's absolutely right. And I think pr probably to be fair, I should have, I should have, uh, I would like to have developed this a bit more, but I think in my view, there's really three main lines of Catholicism in Mexico at the time. Um, of the Religionary Revolt. We have the Ultramontanes, we have the Baroques, but we also have uh, liberal Catholicism, uh, what's been called Enlightened Catholicism in other um, circles, maybe uh, Federalist Catholicism. Um, they all you know, sort of uh, branch off of the same uh, stem. But essentially, uh, you're right that, that most of the radical reformers, even the most radical of them, are Catholics as well. They just have a different... Uh, uh, different vision of what Catholicism is. They want to strip it back to something they see as more democratic um, that, that was present in the early church. Um, they want to make it more uh, sort of obedient or subservient to the state, um, things like that. So there, there really is, I think, these three kind of main branches of Catholicism, and it's really important to see how they interact with each other if you want to understand something like the Religionary Revolt. So in your first chapter, you take all three of these different Catholicisms, as well as the small minority uh, of atheists and Protestants and other groups, and you cover the whole life cycle of the revolt from its antecedents to how the revolt played out to then how it's incorporated into the Porfiriato period. Could you walk us through that timeline kind of briefly um, that you cover in your first chapter, just especially for any listeners that maybe don't know what Lerdismo is or, or the, the terms we've been throwing around? Yeah, sure. 
Uh, so the genesis of the revolt um, really is the 1873 um, incorporation of the so-called laws of reform into the Constitution of Mexico. Um, the laws of reform are really kind of wartime measures. If, you, if your listeners are familiar with the reforma period at all, they'll know that during the reforma, during the wars, um, Benito Juarez's government, uh, sometimes while he was in exile, um, issued these laws that were really fairly, uh, th that attempted really to um, to finally um, and definitively uh, uh, separate church and state, uh, to sort of put the church in its place uh, under the state. Um, and, and, and in some ways to sort of punish the church for its involvement in conservative rebellions and movements and things like that. Uh, so this included prohibitions on, on public worship, uh, which was kind of a major issue that, that I look at in the book. Um, that is to say that uh, religious acts must be uh, uh, performed within church walls, not outside. Uh, and anyone who's been to Mexico or other parts of Latin America know how important processions are. Uh, and other public religious festivals and uh, festivities are to the religious culture there. Um, so that was one of the major ones. There's also the, the nationalization of church property that's not being used uh, directly for uh, the cult. Um, there are uh, prohibitions on religious brotherhoods uh, and things like that. So this was a, a, very, a very serious um, set of anti-clerical measures, uh, but again, were kind of wartime measures at the time when Benito Juarez's government issued them between 1859 and 1861. Um, flash forward uh, past the intervention when, when uh, Lerdo de Tejada comes to power after Juarez's death, um, he kind of makes uh, the, what's the word? He kind of, he kind of makes it his, his main task to sort of consolidate that, the gains of the reforma and the gains of the, of the laws of reform in particular. Um, and so his main project then is to incorporate these laws into the constitution, make them permanent. Um, and that uh, part, part of what came along with that as well is this is an idea that we're no, we're, we're no longer going to tolerate any kind of half measures or any local um, uh, flexibility when it comes to the actual enforcement of these laws of reform. Benito Juarez's government was fairly flexible and allowed people, especially at the local level. Um, for example, local officials could uh, give the green light for processions to happen uh, as long as they, you know, had had been uh, had gotten uh, word of it and things like that. Uh, but Lerdo's government really takes a, a very strong uh, stance against that kind of flexibility. They want to they want this to actually be uh, uniformly enforced. Um, and so the laws of reform are incorporated into the Constitution, um, at least nominally in 1873. And then there's a, an actual law called the Le Organica in 1874 that, that establishes the mechanisms by which those laws will be made enforceable um, nationwide. Um, and that's when you start to see the first uh, of these revolts. Um, and the first of the revolts tend to be in indigenous communities. They tend to be anti-Protestant revolts. Uh, and I should I should. Uh, go back a, a step here and say that the laws of reform also officially declared the separation of church and state, which meant um, that that the old, the very old um, tradition of Catholic exclusivity in Mexico was overturned, um, and that allowed for Protestant pros proselytizers for the first time to come to Mexico openly. Uh, and in fact, Lerdo de Tejada had had actually met with a group of Protestant uh, missionaries from the U.S and sort of welcome them to the country. Um, and so you, what you see is that these early revolts are often anti-Protestant revolts. They're literally people rising up against their either their local uh, authorities, 
accusing them of being Protestants. Or in the case of Abaluco in Jalisco, there were actually a couple of Protestant converts and a Protestant uh, minister uh, who were massacred um, in these kind of anti-Protestant uh, uprisings. So you see that sort of happen in, in late 1873. In 1874, you actually start to see, in the early part of 1874, you start to see the formation of the small gavillas, what I call. These are, these are small, really funeral bands, essentially. They start out in the very, you know, with very small numbers, 5, 10, 15 um, men, mostly men, although there were some women involved in this movement. Um, and then they grow uh, um, very strongly over the next uh, year, year and a half, especially in response to um, the different steps that were taken to actually in, to begin to enforce the laws of reform, including, for example, um, the, um, the exclaustration of the, of the uh, Hermanas de la Caridad, which was a, a, a religious um, a corporation involved with um, healthcare mostly. Um, so they were not, they were, it was decreed that they were not allowed to continue to skirt the laws of reform by living in community and by dressing in their clerical garb. Um, and so they were forced to either leave the community um, uh, um, or leave the country, essentially, which many of them did. Um, and so these kind of turning points um, created a lot more um, agitation in the countryside. Uh, and the religionero gavillas in Michoacan uh, began to grow really, really strongly in that period, especially uh, in the northwest part, in the what's now the district of Jiquilpan, um, and in central Michoacan, uh, in the in a lot of communities in what was then the Puruandiro district. Um, and so these these gavillas grow really big. Um, the state begins to try to the state. The state government in Michoacan at, at, at the beginning um, tries to sort of downplay the threat and keeps saying that these are just a bunch of sort of holdouts from the Maximilian period. Um, they're no big deal. Um, and it mobilizes National Guard units, which you've, which your listeners may have read about in other uh, works on popular liberalism, to, to try to stamp them out. Um, and nothing really works. And in fact, they begin to grow more and more strong, especially uh, by, the, by the time of the um, early 1875. Um, and so by that point, um, the state government has to actually admit that, that things are spiraling out of control, uh, and it asks for federal intervention. And the Lerdista government does provide that. It sends federal troops and then in the low thousands, really, into Michoacan, um, and, it, and increasingly takes this kind of scorched earth kind of uh, approach to the rebellion um, that ends up alienating a whole lot of people um, all over the political spectrum um, and is never really able to get much of a handle on it. Um, in late 1875 and early 1876, um, the, Porfiria, the Porfirian movement, the, the revolution of Tuxtepec gets underway. Um, the government is having a bit more success against the religioneros by way of um, this process they call indulto, whereby um, they would provide these kind of battlefield pardons for people. So those two factors um, cause the religioneros, one, that, that Diaz now is offering a, a new movement in which they can they can sort of... Um, um, put themselves under, right? And the, and the other uh, tendency, which is this, this new uh, battlefield pardon kind of um, approach of the state government, um, of the federal government, rather, um, causes the Rucaneros to decide uh, that, they'll, that they'll go with Porfirio Diaz. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of main trajectory uh, of the revolt. Um, I cover this in the last chapter, but um, in, in 1876 and 1877, what happens is that the Religioneros partner, a lot of the big ones, partner with Diaz. They form part of his Tuxtepec coalition. Uh, but then after he comes to power, he sort of 
quietly begins to get rid of them, either by co-opting them or by actually assassinating them. Um, and so that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell, the kind of trajectory of the revolt. Well, I would say that was a very good brief summary of a complicated <laughs> multi-character history. Um, you, you then transition your next chapter to the other, not, not sort of villain, but antagonist that you mentioned in the introduction. So not only do we have these secularizing liberals, but we also have Catholic modernization that you bring up in your next chapter called a, a Levitical city divided. Um, for the other, I would say for, no, go, go ahead. That, that chapter is actually called The Other Reforma, I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. Right. Wrong finger flip. The Other Reforma. Um, and in this chapter, you talk about the Catholic modernization project of the 19th and 20th century. And for, I would say, a lot of the literature, Catholic and modern never go together at all. So can you tell us a little bit about what Catholic modernization was and, and how it was playing out in Mexico? Yeah, Sure. And I'm glad you, you put it that way, because I think that, that's, that that really is something we need to uh, rethink. And before I get into the more specifics, I think that there's um, a friend of mine who, who has definitely influenced a lot of my, my work, Cecilia Bautista, she's a historian in Michoacan, um, has talked a bit about this, the, the idea of, um, of what she calls concertación, right? That church and state were not, especially in the late 19th century, we can't just think of them as these as these these sort of monolithic antagonists, but in fact, both sort of collaborated in the creation of a new kind of subjectivity, a new kind of modern subjectivity. Um, and I think that that's what you're seeing the beginnings of here in Michoacan. Yes, there is very high level tension between church and state in Mexico at this time period. It hasn't gone away. But on the other hand, the church has decided to, to strategically, really, it has decided to pivot to other kinds of strategies in its, in its attempt to kind of regain its position in Mexico. Um, and that, and a major part of that strategy involves a kind of accommodation with the liberal order uh, writ large. Um, and so I, I, as, I, as I portrayed in the book, um, the, the, when sort of Catholic restorationism, what I call, um, comes to Mich Michoacan, it comes to Mexico really uh, in the around 1862. It started, of course, a bit before then, but in 1862, the, the church uh, reforms the episcopate. In other words, redivides uh, uh, the, um, the jurisdictional boundaries of the, of the diocese in Mexico, creates a number of new dioceses. Um, and this is, a very again, a very strategic and targeted kind of reform in which um, the center west is kind of targeted as an area to, um, to create new dioceses, which creates more pastoral oversight um, allows for more seminaries to be created and, and in turn more priests to be created. Uh, again, because this area is very, very crucial to the church. It's a kind of historic stronghold of the church, number one, but it's also a place where liberalism has taken hold in some places. Michoacan has got this really kind of explosive geography um, where there are, you know, it's the land of Melchor Campo and Epitacio Huerta, but it's also the land of, of people like uh, De La Peña, the, the Bishop of Zamora, and uh, La Bastida, the, the Archbishop of Mexico. Um, and so this is a, again, this is a targeted attempt to kind of, um, to increase the church's uh, control in this area. Um, so that's one aspect of it is this kind of jurisdictional, this kind of structural aspect. The other is a kind of cultural aspect, and this is a, a real tightening of relations um, and uh, tightening of sentiment even between uh, Mexican churchmen and Mexican Catholics on the one hand and uh, European and especially uh, Roman uh, Catholics. Um, 
this is literally literally there are um, new and and strengthened relationships between Mexican bishops, for example, and the Pope himself, Pius IX, who is kind of the avatar of this uh, what I call intransigent or ultramontane Catholicism uh, worldwide in the period. Um, some of these Mexican churchmen had been exiled during the Reform Wars um, in Rome, and so they had spent a lot of time literally hanging out with Pius IX, uh, had developed more strong relationships with him, had traveled around Europe, had seen kind of what what, what the, the local flavor of devotion was, what, what the trends in devotion were, really, um, and tried to bring those back to Mexico. Uh, essentially became convinced that the way that Mexico would, the church in Mexico would regain its power was by um, by reforming its religion, getting rid of some of the uh, some of the more baroque aspects, um, and and sort of promoting this more ultramontane Catholicism, um, and you know part of that has to do yes with with suppressing uh, indigenous um, uh, religious um, uh, traditions, for example, when they when they fail to uh, adhere to orthodoxy, but uh, part of it also is the promotion of new kinds of of devotional. Um, and charitable organizations, things like the Vela Perpetua, uh, the is a, is, is a good example. For example, uh, and um, other organizations like the the Vincentian Charities. Um, so they're, the church is essentially offering or looking for new avenues for Catholics to be um, involved and to express their devotion in ways that are not um, tied to this older sort of Baroque model, which is based on um, you know. Corporate sodalities, essentially, that's based on um, co- indigenous cofradías, that's based on entailed lands, things like that. Um, so it's a new kind of uh, voluntary uh, and modern Catholicism um, that relies on uh, different kinds of uh, understandings of the relationship between um, earthly and, and divine um, power. And for the next three chapters of the of the book, you explain how these these conflicts, these interactions, these alliances between secular Catholicism or federal Catholicism and Baroque Catholicism and ultramontane Catholicism play out in the different regions of Michoacan, because like like many states, but especially in Michoacan, it's divided. Um, chapter three, a Levitical city divided, this time actually the right one, um, talks about Northwestern Michoacan and how, how these alliances and, and conflicts played out there. Could you tell us a little bit about the Northwestern part of the state? Yeah, so the Northwest is um, like like all other parts of Michoacan. It's complicated. It's internally divided, but it, it is also historically a stronghold of Catholicism. Um, it particularly become so, especially Zamora. Zamora is really a pole of this kind of ultramontane Catholicism. It's kind of the la- the, the diocese of Zamora becomes a kind of laboratory for this ultramontane reform, um, and so it. So for one, for one, it already had this kind of slower, slower rolling tendency toward that kind of um, or more orthodox, more ranchero, more mestizo kind of Catholicism uh, in places like San Jose de Gracia, which has been um, uh, which has been made famous by uh, Luis Gonzalez's work, uh, but in other places like Zamora itself. Um, uh, and, and then there's the, the the ecclesiastical reform of 1862 really really brings it home and brings uh, and empowers the new diocese to kind of create this this laboratory for Catholic reform in some more in the Zamora diocese, which includes all of the north uh, northwest. Um, and so the northwest really is um, I, I, it was a place I wanted to start out um, 
looking at closely because I knew that if there were conflicts between these different strains of Catholicism, you must find it there because there are still um, these historic indigenous communities in the place. There are still Afro-Mestizo communities, especially around the uh, Lake Chapala and things like that. Um, so zooming down to the parish level, I, I wanted to see how this was all playing out. Uh, and what I found was that there was were indeed, there's there's certainly heightening tensions between these kind of different strains of Catholicism um, all over the Northwest at the time. Um, which is not to say, again, and I want to stress that about this chapter, it's not to say that these two factions, Ultramontane uh, and Baroque, went to war with each other literally uh, in, the, in the Northwest especially. The Northwest was 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 tended to be the, one of the, was the stronger really Hunero bastions in all of Michoacan, which is to say there's a lot of support, basically broad support among many different sectors of the population for the really Hunero rebellion. Um, however, uh, what you see when you, when you zoom down um, to the parish level and then you, and you sort of cross check um, parish records with military records is that the kinds of people getting involved in the really Hunero revolt in Northwestern Michoacan were not these kind of well-heeled, these kind of uh, modernizing, these kind of ultramontane Catholics. Um, those types tended to stay out of the revolt, um, and they found other ways um, to, to kind of promote their new style of religion and kind of find new roles for themselves within the church um, through, for example, these kind of devotional associations, new modern charitable associations, uh, things like that. Um, but what you found was that the, the kind that did get involved in the revolt tended to come from these these this older line kind of Baroque model. People like Eulogio Cardenas, who is actually a relative of, of Tata Lazaro Cardenas, uh, comes from a from an Afro mestizo uh, family of Riboseros, people who made shawls. Um, people like that were the kind that were were, were drawn to this um, revolt. And I find out I, I sort of um, show how. Um, that's because their their sort of religious leadership, their place in their communities is being quickly eroded um, by this new kind of restorationist Catholicism. And so even if they didn't go to war literally with each other, um, there was this, this kind of, of competition right, for leadership of the local church. Um, and I, and I, I conclude that people like Elohio Cardenas got into the revolt specifically as a way to kind of reassert this kind of Baroque um, uh, model of religion that was quickly being kind of erased. Um, and it's also key to remember that, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, even the liberals, so even the, the most hardcore anti-clerical liberals, you know, with the, with the exception of the, of the few atheists or Protestants, um, they're all Catholics. But at the local level, in a place like northwestern Michoacan, um, those people were, are really Catholics. The people that are working for the government, the people that, who are um, in municipal positions of power in the municipal government, those people are, are loyal Catholics and conservative Catholics, many of them. Um, but they decided to to ride out this this revolt. They decided to continue, you know, serving the government through the period, um, and that actually sometimes did bring them into actual, you know violent conflict with religioneros. So we shouldn't, I really think we shouldn't play down um, the, the, the strength or the intensity of this conflict between these different uh, Catholic factions, even in a place like Northwestern Michoacan, which was generally a quite conservative and Catholic bastion. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and that conflict looks different um, in the next region you cover in chapter four, which is the central part of Michoacan, where it's entitled Martyrs, of, uh, Martyrs for Our Lord. Uh, so how did the central area differ from that very conservative northwestern area? Yeah, it's a um, it's a really interesting um, region. The, the the next chapter looks at uh, essentially the area that was covered by the district of Puruandiro. If you look at the map of Michoacan, it doesn't really look like the center of the of the state. But the religioneros there actually refer to themselves as the central zone, uh, the the the, uh, the uh, gavias of the central um, region. So I kind of use their terminology. Um, What's different about the central central Michoacan is a couple of things. Um, the most prominent of which is that uh, it belonged not to the the uh, super sort of ultramontane reforming uh, diocese of Zamora, but to the much much older and more tolerant archdiocese of Michoacan. Um, this is for for listeners who are at all uh, um, familiar with the history, the religious history of Mexico. I mean, this was a major uh, area of evangelization. This is this is the, the sort of the area of Vasco de Quiroga's kind of utopian uh, Indian hospital kind of um, religion. Um, and the people at the helm of the Archdiocese of Michoacan uh, are not nearly as sold on this kind of ultramontane um, model, especially not its Europeanizing trends. Um, they don't get involved. You see, for example, that they don't get involved in, in many of the, the schemes that the Zamora uh, folks are up to, for example, sending young students to study for the priesthood in, in Europe and things like that, or recruiting uh, foreign Jesuits to come uh, teach their priests and things like that. They're much more interested. They're much more sure about themselves, I guess, in, in their history. Um, they're more invested in their own history as kind of uh, as the kind of uh, inheritors of this legacy of Kirogan religion. Um, and that makes them, I argue, a bit more tolerant when it comes to Baroque religion. Um, they're not completely tolerant, right? They they are reformers. They are they they're kind of swept up in the air, in the ethos of the day, which is a, an ethos of reform. Um, but when push comes to shove, uh, when you when you read a lot of this this correspondence between the archdiocese and um, communities, you'll find that there are these ultramontane priests that are out in some of these communities in central Michoacan don't have very much luck and don't have very much support from their from their archdiocesan superiors when they when they try to really bring the hammer down on these indigenous um, uh, religious traditions and things like that. So that's a, that's one me, real major difference. Um, and what I find, I, I look at three different communities in the in central Michoacan: uh, Coineo, uh, which has got a, a strong purépecha indigenous uh, component to it. Um, Huango, which is a bit more mixed, a bit more mestizo, and Juanikeo, which is also a bit more mixed, but a bit more on the on the indigenous side. Juanikeo is where Socorro Reyes came from. So I, I knew I wanted to, he was kind of a really important figure for me. I, I knew I wanted to look at his community. Uh, and what I found about Central Michoacan was that there were, there were these three very different outcomes in this one kind of zone. Um, and, the, and those outcomes had to do with different um, experiences of liberal and Catholic reformism and how, um, how the different communities were able to co- kind of negotiate or not, not negotiate um, their religious prerogatives, either with liberals or with the Catholic church or both. Uh, so, for example, in the case of Koineo, uh, I found that the Purepechas there uh, mostly did not join the revolt. Um, and that was due to a couple of things. One, um, that they, they had faced this kind of ultramontane uh, challenge internally 
um, with their with their local parish priest, but they were able to sort of defeat the challenge. Um, one by uh, by uh, just sort of arguing for their traditions and having an archdiocese that that didn't really want to um, alienate them. And two, by negotiating with the local liberals, the, the liberal tradition in Conail was very strong. Um, and so, and the local liberals there um, had it sort of had it out for this, this uh, local ultramontane reformer as well. And so the Perepages kind of back the liberals um, and they kind of sit out the revolt. Um, and, they, and they come out of that actually um, in a quite favorable position because they're able to renew their uh, or return to their uh, their festive traditions, uh, which get uh, get restarted there fairly quickly after uh, Porfirio Diaz comes to power. Um, in the other two communities, things are things look a bit different. So in Juanicao, for example, um, the the ultramontane challenge is a bit stronger. Um, the local land division policies there are a bit more destructive to the community because they, even though they don't completely destroy indigenous communal holding, what they do is they leave a lot of that of the communal economy intact, but they target religious properties. One of the things I found out that was really fascinating looking at the land division records um, for this project is that um, local liberals in places like Wanikeo, other places like Chilchota, when they, when they run up into obstacles in actually disentailing indigenous communities, uh, which they often do. The, the communities can say, we already we already did a, a reparto or we're already in uh, litigation with X or Y Hacienda, so we can't do the reparto. So the repartos don't often go forward. Uh, when that happens, sometimes local liberals decide to do these more targeted strikes on religious properties, which can be disentailed as well. So they'll go after a church atrium, for example, or a church plaza used by indigenous communities for their processions. Um, and so that's what happened in Wanikeo. The local liberals go after um, local religious church properties um, uh, using Leilerdo, uh, and that that helps to uh, to uh, to create another local rebellion there as well. Um, and so you see in places like Wanikeo and in Wango as well, um, local communities kind of rallying around Baroque traditions, um, usually Christological saints in this in this case. Uh, in Wanikeo, we have the uh, Our Lord of Mercy. Uh, I'm sorry, in Wango, the Our Lord of Mercy. Uh, and in, in uh, uh, Wanikeo, uh, a local, uh, another local Christological figure that, that is uh, Our Lord of Health, which is um, kind of the main patron of Socorro Reyes. Um, so you actually see communities more sort of uniting around um, local Baroque devotions against both uh, ultramontane challenges and liberal anti-clericalism. So you have these three very different outcomes in one sort of place, which I thought was interesting. And, and then you move to an example that feels like it's almost a whole other region or country um, comparatively, which is the southern part of the state um, in a chapter that I think you appropriately call um, spiritual orphans. Uh, tell us about the, the southern part of the state and how this trifecta uh, of Catholic politics intersected there. Sure. Yeah, that, so Qualcomán, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, Qualcomán was the first place that I encountered the religioneros, and I encountered them through a study of land division. Um, and so I knew from the start Qualcomán had to be one of my case studies. And it's a really interesting place, again, a very explosive place. Um, and what I found was, uh, so, so I assumed, I sort of assumed that Qualcomán would be a place where uh, material or agrarian uh, issues would would be the kind of um, most important issues and that maybe the religious aspect would kind of fade into the background. Um, 
and 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 what I found was that yes, the agrarian component is really really important in Qualcomm. It it does explain to a large extent um, why indigenous comuneros, uh, for example, got involved in the revolt. But there was also many other factors, including important religious factors, um, that that guided revolt in Qualcomm, and, and also that that also influenced the the trajectory and the outcomes there. Um, essentially. Qualcomm is this place that's very far from, it's, it's very isolated. It's very far from um, everything that's happening in sort of central and northwestern Michoacan. Um, it's mostly an indigenous kind of hinterland, uh, but it's a place where these waves of mestizo immigrants coming mostly from the north, uh, mostly from places like Jalisco and mostly in places like Cotija and these kind of more ranchero orthodox communities, they're kind of filtering down into the Sierra um, and and kind of uh, beginning to uh, put pressure on indigenous communal holding in it, and importantly, also on indigenous religious uh, leadership in the area. Um, and so the 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 reparto, which takes place there in 1871, that that really is a major trigger in the area. Uh, I talked about this already, but it, there was it was a hugely conflictual and and downright fraudulent reparto in many ways. Um, it divided the indigenous community internally. So a, a faction of those people um, went into revolt, um, started doing things like trying to kidnap the, uh, the local alcalde and things like that. And then they got themselves involved in the Rilicunero revolt. But they're only one real, really one constituency in this, in this kind of tripartite uh, uh, Rilicunero constituency in that area. Um, the other one is uh, the Guzman clan, um, who I found really fascinating because they actually come from a very liberal heritage, um, going back to Gordiano Guzman, who was an insurgent, a federalist. Um, so they have this history of, of these, being these kind of liberal caudillos or liberal caciques in the Sierra. Uh, but the scions of that clan get involved in the Rilicunera revolt, uh, I argue, because they've seen their influence and power um, eroded at the same time that the indigenous community is being eroded. Uh, well, the, the Guzmans are essentially uh, patrons um, of this of this uh, indigenous community, and they're also seeing their um, their standing eroded in the area, uh, and so they get involved as well. Um, and then there's this other this third constituency that comes from without, not really from from Qualcomán head town itself, but from towns like Aguilia, uh, which are towns made up mostly of these new this new wave or couple of waves of immigrants, mestizo immigrants coming from other places. These are much more ultramontane, much more orthodox type Catholics. Um, but locally in their own town in Aguilia, they have a kind of united uh, front against uh, liberalism uh, because they don't have so much of these kind of cleavages within Catholicism. Um, but they, so they, they, they form this kind of temporary alliance with people like the Guzmans and the, the indigenous Comunero contingent under the Candidos. Uh, but I, that I show that that really falls apart fairly quickly, um, because precisely because there are such, uh, such a gulf between these different, uh, these different factions. So there's a major attack on the head town of Qualcomán in which, uh, the different factions all, you know, participate, uh, but they kind of send the indigenous, uh, contingent out as infantry. Uh, and they get cut down very quickly. Many of them die. Many of them get captured and ask for indulto. And the indigenous after that, and that's in early 1875, I believe, they decide to sort of sit out the rest of this conflict. They don't get too involved anymore. Um, and, and from then on, it becomes more of this, this double constituency of uh, Guzmans and, again, these, these more pious rancheros from Aguilia. 
Uh, and I found so that was the, that's the sort of military history uh, of the revolt in that region. And, and I found that there was a parallel thing going on in the religious realm, specifically that in a place like Qualcomm Headtown, um, these new immigrants um, have begun to demand a new kind of new standards of religious practice and style, uh, more befitting their kind of ranchero Catholicism, uh, and that includes. Um, doing things like, well, they're getting lands from the land division, right? This fraudulent land division. And now they want to sacralize those lands by pay, paying, paying individual tithes on them. Um, so, that, so again, it undermines in, in both in spiritual leadership, but also in, in the sort of spiritual economy of the, of the area. Um, what was once this sort of uh, indigenous uh, stronghold where um, indigenous cofradias, for example, would, would have held sway now is being really tilted in favor of these kind of pious rancheros who are amassing uh, private property in the area um, and, and establishing stronger and stronger ties with the diocese of Zamora. And, and as clearly different as all three parts of this, of this one state, let alone all the other states in Mexico are, by 1876, as you cover in your next chapter, Lerdismo derailed, um, all three of these areas have one thing in common, which is that the revolt is starting to wind down or lose some steam at the very least, until it finds an unlikely ally in the liberal Porfirio Diaz. Uh, can you tell us how did these rebels end up working with uh, the one of the liberals of the 19th and 20th century in Mexico? Sure. I think there's a combination of factors here. One is that... Um, the, although the the state and federal government were having a very hard time fully stamping out the revolt, I don't think they, you know, the tide had sort of started to turn against, against the religioneros a bit in late 1876 with this new approach, uh, especially under uh, Mariano Escobedo, uh, again, of giving indultos, of giving these battlefield pardons to people. So the, the ranks of the religioneros started to thin, especially in places like Central Michoacan, where they went back, where they, you know, went back to their fields. And in some places went back to their processions with the actual uh, permission of authorities. So that's sort of happening. They're, they're sort of weakening in some ways on that front. And on the other, Diaz presents himself as an ally to them. He actually, he actually uh, proactively goes out and, and tries to recruit them. Um, I looked at some correspondence um, held at the Benson Library here in Austin, in which Diaz, you can see at the beginning, he was sort of he was sort of toying with the idea of sending someone like Vicente Riva Palacios to Michoacan. Palacios had, Palacio had this sort of um, experience there. Uh, he, he fought there during the intervention. So I think you could see Diaz thought, well, maybe this guy knows the terrain. Maybe he can help us recruit local liberals. Um, but you can see that, that he quickly actually discarded that uh, tactic and instead went with uh, trying to recruit religionero bands. And I think that's, I think that's testament to how, um, Really, how how much um, these bands had re- begun to really unsettle, uh, de- destabilize the local uh, the, uh, the state government of Michoacan. So he sends out. So he does this through intermediaries. Um, you can go. Uh, there's a there's a big collection of Diaz's uh, correspondence uh, edited by uh, Alberto Maria Carreño, um, and you can read through these things and see the, the kind of the ways in which Diaz. Um, sort of recruited people to go into Michoacan and to, as one of them said, to turn the religious revolt into a political revolt. Um, and so literally these people were tasked with going into to broker these alliances with religioneros. Um, and it works. It didn't, it, there, there are some overtures early on, very early on in the Tuxtepec uh, revolution uh, period that are rebuffed. Um, specifically, there's a, there are accounts of 
um, approaches made to Benito Mesa, who's a kind of one of these major, major religion or captains in the Northwest. Um, and apparently Mesa rebuffed the, the approach because he wanted to keep uh, the Constitution of 1824 as the kind of standard for the, for the new political movement, which again, the Constitution of 1824 would have kept Catholicism as the official religion of Mexico. Uh, and but Benito, uh, I'm sorry, Diaz's people wanted to keep the Constitution of 1857. So, so it didn't happen at first. But I think as the Religioneros' fortunes begin to change with this new indulto policy, they decide maybe it's time to to look again at Diaz. And we don't know exactly how these face-to-face conversations happened. Maybe I speculate. Maybe some of these agents of Diaz has actually offered them this idea that well. Once we get into power, maybe we can talk about softening some of these anti-clerical provisions of the, the laws of reform. We also know that Diaz used the idea or the, this tenet of municipal autonomy, which he's, he kind of he harps on a lot. Um, that that can be that could be seen quite clearly by uh, by Catholics um, uh, of various stripes um, as a as an invitation to sort of take back local power. Um, that is. If there's if there's autonomy at the municipal level, that means um, that a, that a municipal authority in some small town in Michoacan can decide not to enforce the laws of reform to allow people to actually continue their processions and things like that. Um, and so Diaz has a, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of um, success right away at sort of converting these really narrow bands. And on the other hand, the more well-heeled Catholic um, conservatives in Michoacan, which is a strong again, it's a strong constituency. Um, there's a strong Catholic press there. Um, again, mo- most of these people are aligned with the more ultramontane vision, but and and were skeptical, very skeptical of the religioneros at first. Uh, but as this begins, this alliance begins to form between Diaz and the Religionero bands, they begin to speak a lot more positively about the Religioneros. And in fact, they begin to sort of uh, champion them um, as people who are trying to restore, you know, the, the faith of the people and et cetera. Uh, and so this kind of this kind of alliance really solidifies uh, in 1876. Um, and, and interestingly, you see very immediately this kind of backlash among Diaz's liberal supporters. They can't, some of them can't believe it. You know, you, you, you yourself, Ethan, expressed um, this kind of very unlikely, you know, this is an unlikely uh, alliance. Well, some of Diaz's um, strongest kind of allies in Michoacan were also really taken aback by this um, and, and really horrified by the fact that he would ally with some of these people, including an ex-imperialist general like Felipe Chacon. Uh, this guy's from Toluca. Um, and he, Diaz kind of entrusts him with coming over, you know, from the East into Michoacan, into Eastern Michoacan, and uh, to sort of like convert those peoples to those people to the, uh, to the banner of Tuxtepec. Uh, and the local liberals there are just horrified because, you know, Chacon has this history of being an imperialist. Um, and Diaz's response to these things is, is really interesting and telling. He essentially says, without saying much, you know, if you read his correspondence, he's, he really is very, He's, he uh, often he's a man of few words, and he says things like patience and trust. Essentially, just just let's ride this out. You know, I know what I'm doing. Um, we're going to use these uh, really canary. We're going to use the the strength of these really canary bands for now. Uh, we'll fix things later. I think he says at some point, any defects that you see now can be corrected later at a better time for us. Um, and so that's what he does. I, I do want to stress that I don't believe that Diaz was omnipotent, that he knew that, that he knew this would work, that he, you know, was some sort of master puppeteer. Uh, it, he was, he was kind of just responding to the events as they, as they unfolded. But I also do think he was quite shrewd in the way that he, uh, he went about this. 
Um, and then in 1877, of course, early 1877, he begins to actually purge the Rucuneros. So once his power is, is, is fairly consolidated at the national level, once the Decembrista threat uh, is, is taken care of, uh, he begins to actually get rid of these Rucuneros one way or another. One way is by recruiting them. There, there, are, there are local uh, or, or uh, forces, uh, liberal forces that recruit some of them into their ranks. Um, and then the other way is by uh, sort of criminalizing them, saying that they're they're up to their old tactics of banditry and et cetera, uh, and then, uh, you know, persecuting them uh, and including um, using the, the notorious Le Fuga, right? The, the, uh, the, that report that, well, we had captured X or Y really arrow and they tried to flee and so we shot them. And so he purges a bunch of them at that time. Um, there is some outrage from the local Catholic press. But I argue that by that point, point um, Catholics across Michoacan had begun to accommodate this new regime, this new Porfirian regime, and the Catholic Church itself in Michoacan also accommodated the new regime. They, they sort of backed off on their on on some of their uh, pronouncements against the laws of reform. Um, again, with the idea, I believe um, that these differences could be worked out in a more informal way um, under Porfirio Diaz that they couldn't be uh, under Lerdo. And that that story of um, befriending Diaz just to maybe regret that later is a common one for the next several yeah. decades of Mexican history. That's absolutely right. Um, so uh, I think, as you correctly pointed out at the very beginning of this interview, um, this revolt is very little covered in historiography or, or very briefly, if ever. Um, what do you see as its light, wider legacy or impact? Why why is it important to bring this back into the conversation of Mexican history? Yeah, it's a good question. I do think so. It is the revolt has been given very very short shrift, kind of um, in Mexican historiography generally. There's a, a a thesis that finished just just a bit before mine in Mexico. Um, on the on the revolt, um, and that's the only other like kind of systematic uh, study of the Rilekunero revolt. And what you see is that the liberal historiography just kind of dismissed it as being, you know, impotent and um, backwards. Um, and even a lot of the Catholic uh, historiography, I, I was surprised by some of the stuff that you'll read from, you know, sort of Pan era. Um, Catholic historians writing about uh, the history of Michoacan, kind of dismissing this as a, a revolt of ignorant peasants and things like that. It wasn't really about religion and things like that. Um, and I think that for for a couple of reasons that's been that way. I think it's one is because um, the Rilekuneros were super decentralized um, and provincialist and localist. Um, they never really cohered into a into a major or a, um, a, a more cohesive, I guess, national movement like the Cristeros did. Uh, and they didn't really, yeah, they, they won some support from sort of Catholic editorialists at the end of their, um, their period, but they didn't really um, make very strong alliances with the Catholic elite. Uh, the Catholic Church itself actually fairly strongly condemned rebellion as a, as a way to approach, a way to, um, uh, to address the, the uh, conflicts of church and state of the era. Um, and so they were, they were kind of, I think they were, they were just seen as sort of a, a flash in the pan, a sort of return or a, an attempt or a last gasp of a, of an older kind of conservatism, um, which I think is mistaken. And I think um, they are, again, a challenge to both liberal anti-clericalism and a challenge to Catholic uh, modernization. Uh, and I think they are successful in some respects, in some places uh, for some time. For example, um, 
we see that because of this alliance with Porfirio Diaz, um, that the kind of church-state conciliation that, that, that unfolds in the Porfiriato allows for uh, a real resurgence of Catholicism, both at the elite level and, and at the local level. We saw the return of these, uh, these religious processions, for example, with the uh, collusion of local authorities that begins to happen again in, in Michoacan. Um, and so the Relicaneros really, in some places at least, were able to overturn uh, what was then the most, the most radical, the most thoroughgoing uh, of anti-clerical reform in Mexico's history at the time. And moreover, um, this, this sort of informal um, pact, this sort of modus vivendi with the, with the Porfirian regime, um, I think it, it goes on to play a very important role in the, not only in the Porfiriato, but in the unraveling of the Porfiriato. Um, we know, for example, that um, Protestant groups especially, which become much more numerous in Mexico uh, following, you know, after the 1870s, uh, they start to get really annoyed with uh, and grumpy about the fact that Diaz has these cozy relationships with the Catholic Church, um, and they're going to be an important uh, constituency in the Mexican Revolution. Um, and so really, uh, I, th I argue that the Religionera Revolt and, and, its, and what, came after, what came out of it, right, its, its ramifications, um, really kind of stymied, uh, really kind of stunted this, this uh, major secularization drive in Mexico. Um, kind of put off a reckoning, a bigger reckoning with it um, until uh, another generation later during the revolution and the Cristero Wars. Well, it is a wonderful contribution to the field, and I would definitely recommend it for both Mexican historians, but also anybody that works on church history or religious history in Latin America. Um, what can we look forward to next from you? What projects do you have going on right now or that you hope to work on in the future? Sure. So I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I've, I've, I haven't left academia, but I'm sort of alt-ac at this point. Um, and I, in, my, in my sort of day-to-day -day work at the General Land Office, I actually am working on a couple of different publications. Um, those will be of a very different nature. Um, they're likely going to be uh, edited volumes uh, and uh, compilations of translations. Um, so for example, and they should be of some interest to historians of Latin America, I hope. Um, the first one, which is now under under advanced contract with UT Press, um, is a, a set of translations on the issue of slavery in Mexican Texas, um, and, which will be accompanied by five essays by uh, scholars of, of of Texas, scholars of slavery, uh, scholars in Mexico. Um, so that'll be interesting. Those are documents that we hold at the Texas Journal Land Office. They have to do with uh, tensions between, mostly tensions between the Anglo um, slaveholders uh, coming into Texas at the time under the so-called impresario system um, of Stephen F. Austin and the like, uh, and the Mexican government, which was trying to abolish slavery. Um, so those, that's the, the, the most immediate project, um, hopefully see the light of day in a couple of years. Um, next is another set of translations that we worked on having to do with the so-called immigrant tribes. These are groups like the Cherokees, the Choctaws, uh, the Alabama Cushada, uh, who come to uh, what was then Northern Mexico, uh, now, te now Texas, uh, in the late 1820s and 1830s, essentially uh, being pushed out by uh, US uh, removal policies. And so who come to uh, Texas and asking for uh, land grants, essentially from the Mexican government. Um, those generally don't work out, although the Mexican government is fairly favorable 
favorably disposed towards them at first, but for a variety of factors, they, it, it doesn't really work out. But there's this, they left this really incredibly rich uh, set of documents uh, in the general land office, um, which again, because it's a, a, a land focused archive has all these documents related to attempts to get uh, land grants under Mexican colonization programs. So that'll be the next uh, project. And that's a bit more further out, but that's a, uh, that's pretty much what I'm working on. Well, I'm a, Excited and looking forward to to reading that when it comes out. Thank you so much for your time today and for writing this wonderful book for us. Thank you so much for having me.